0: Welcome to the Coaching in Clubland podcast. My name is Mitch Johnston and I'll be your host. Coaching in Clubland is an Aussie podcast designed for current and aspiring coaches from all levels and across a range of sports to share their experiences about the caper. We discuss the roller coaster that is the coaching experience, the highs, the lows, the joys and the pitfalls. I caught the coaching bug as a teenager and have been fortunate enough to hold various coaching roles within cricket and footy clubs over the last 15 years. Through these experiences and my interactions as a player, I've come across many great and some not so great coaches in Clubland. We'll aim to keep things simple, practical and relatable so that you can apply these insights to your own coaching experiences. Sit back, grab a cuppa and please enjoy the episode. In this episode of Coaching in Clubland, we speak to Brendan Joyce. In a career spanning over 40 years, Brendan Joyce has been a wonderful servant of Australian basketball as both a player and a coach. Most notably, he was the coach of the Australian women's basketball team from 2013 to 2016, leading the Opals to the Rio Olympics, whilst also previously being a long-term assistant coach of the Australian men's basketball team from 2001 to 2009, where the Boomers played in two Olympic Games, two Commonwealth Games and several World Championships over that period. Brendan has worked with the who's who of Australian basketball. Paddy Mills, Andrew Bogut, Liz Cambridge, Brian Gorgian, you name it. In the NBL, Brendan coached the Wollongong Hawks, now the Illawarra Hawks, from 1995 to 2006, and led the club to their first championship in 2001. He also coached the now-defunct Gold Coast Blaze in their start-up period as a franchise, taking the Blaze immediately to the playoffs in his first year. Only recently has Brendan been appointed as the new coach of kuo Aquas in Taiwan, a challenge that he's very excited about. Brendan's playing career wasn't too shabby either playing in 289 NBL games from 1979 to 1991 as a point guard and being a two-time NBL All-Star team representative. In our chat with Brendan, we talk about the 20th anniversary of him coaching the Wollongong Hawks to the 2001 NBL Championship, what it was like working with Brian Gorgian, and some of the secrets to coaching a team during tournament play. This episode is proudly brought to you by Big Dog Clothing. For high-quality sports apparel and lifestyle clothing, visit www.bigdog.com.au to view their range. That's Dog with a double G. And for listeners who follow both Big Dog Clothing and our podcast on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter, if you share a post, story or retweet a podcast episode, you'll go into the running for a weekly $30 voucher. Entries close Tuesday, 5pm each week. Okay, legends, let's get stuck into the episode. Welcome to the Coaching Clubland podcast, Brendan Joyce. Hey Mitch, great to be here. Thank you for coming on Brent. it's awesome to have you on, very privileged to have you on and I have to admit my basketball knowledge is, is somewhat limited. I played a year of basketball early in high school and quickly found out that cricket and to a lesser extent footy is sort of my go. So apologies in advance for any uh, technical knowledge that I might not have. But before we get into, into some specifics, uh, obviously Melbourne and as Sydney are uh, under the pump a little bit with lockdown at the moment. Where do we find you? We know that you've played and coached across the Eastern Seaboard there. Where do we find you at the moment?
1: Yeah, I'm in lockdown like everybody else. Uh, Season got interrupted with Ballarat, stopped. Uh, I work for, you know, the Chisholm Sports Academy, Do a lot of work out in the East with a lot of students from TAFE, you know, being involved in coach development, helping out different associations. So uh, it's all stopped, mate. We've been affected, especially in the sporting world, from an employment point of view. Have done some stuff online, like some coach development, uh, Zoom sessions over the last 18 months, you know, in particular, and obviously some skill sessions. But I think people are tired. You know, they're tired. It was, it was all enthusiastic at the beginning with all that. But to be honest, I think people are worn out and obviously the mental health has been tested. And so we're really at a delicate stage. So hopefully things are going to improve quickly.
0: A lot of coaches I've spoken to have really eased up on the whole Zoom and and sending programs to to players, just knowing that we're not too sure when we'll actually get underway with community sport. Uh, Elite sport's a little bit different, of course, but I think that's a really good point around uh, getting the mental health side of things sorted firstly. Now, Brennan, it's it's the 20th anniversary of the Wollongong Hawks winning the 2001 NBL Championship. I can see a smile emerge already. Mm. I'm sure there's some very fond memories. Looking back, it was a pretty amazing feat considering you know, the challenges that you guys had on the road. And I know that was a big focus of yours as well. And the pressure of the club not having won a championship in their existence up until that point. What are some of your reflections 20 years on from that, that championship and what made it so special?
1: Yeah, Mitch, it's, it's, it's not something you can answer quickly. And, uh, it's most coaches will tell you and players, you know, the championship doesn't just happen. It's a, it's a journey. And it was a heck of a journey, <laughs> you know, small, small journey, five, six years leading to that championship, which we built. And the challenges were not only in that year, as you say, I think we had one of the best away, away records, but if I look back and I think about my first interview with Illawarra, they'd only ever made a final four once. I think. And at that point, I'm just trying to think, uh, they'd been in the league 18, 19 years and, been in the final a couple of times. We usually finish eighth and just sort of just wanted you to be competitive and happy to win home games. And when I went in there, I said, no, I want to win a championship, mate. I still remember the board members looking at each other and saying, yeah, this would be really good, but I don't think they really believed me what I wanted yeah. to do. <laughs> and I said, I want us to be a top four team. And, and you know, I was um, probably a little naive as a young coach because I, I forgot to ask him how much money they had to spend on players, which wasn't a lot. Mm. And the best player at that time, Melvin Thomas, was being approached by the Sydney Kings, and you know, the board one of the basically spent a third on him to keep him, which we yeah. had to stop at that time. I would have ended up with no one, so he left. And as you know, uh, he came back down the bottom the first couple of years and yep. trying to build a young team. We, we had a young group obviously with no money, so it really was a true journey as far as development with guys like Matt Campbell and Savile. And you know, for a year or two, we had CJ Bruton and David Anderson. we developed a reputation. The development they left, but it took four or five years to build that championship and, and then become a destination club. But I think it was really important I share that. And I tell you in my third year, the start of the third year, the club had a meeting, and you saw this with Teagues. Well, I mean, most footy clubs, you know, they get to a point, have we got the right guys? So in my third year, uh we were struggling, and as I said, we, we didn't, you know, we, I had I decided to go with a really young group. When you go to young players, you've got to lose games. Yep. They're learning, and so that's what I tell footy coaches or any any coach today that's aspiring to be successful. If you're going to build, you better make sure you've got support behind you, and I only just survived. I I was told, you know, if you don't make the playoffs this year, you're going to be sacked 100%, and coached under that sort of pressure, and towards the end of the second year, being in a small town, it was put in an ad basically in the paper saying, should he stay or should he go? So that, (laughs) you know, obviously got a lot of people involved, and it was some angry people. I had uh, brick thrown through my window, or stuff like you hear in Adelaide, and Perth, et No, no, and, and one of the kids that just was on the other side of the window, fortunately, in bed, and you run out and no one's there. And as they're yeah. driving off, I can't repeat what they said, but basically, no. get back to Melbourne. You, you know, <laughs> so my wife's saying, you don't need this. You know, you, we don't need this. You, you're passionate. You, you, but I said no, I don't give up. And you know, in that third year, during the process of that third year, we started to be successful. Fortunately. And we had a change in ownership. There was a guy that bought 25% of the club and he was really switched on dude. His name was John Carson. Yep. He's, his father ran West League's footy club for a long time and he was involved with, you know, rugby league from an Australian point of view. So John had a great understanding of sport and he was a, a blessing for me. So I cut a long story short, which has become a long story for a short <laughs> answer, but they said to me, you would not, you're done. So if we don't make playoffs. So I actually made well, the team. The team made the playoffs for the last game. We won by a Point Canberra. Yep. So we stuck it, snuck into the top six, survived, and then John's pretty much ended up taking over the team, signed me for three years, and then another two years later, got to finish the job off, and as you just say, win a championship. But I think it's really important that people understand, <laughs> you know, Melbourne is talking about it now, the Melbourne Footy Club, right, about the journey. You know, mm-hmm. you look at their cl- uh, coach. Now, they talk about firing him last year, right? so and look where they are now but you know I survived that year as you said was really special one of the things I wanted to change was the culture of the club was about not being happy with just winning at home and being having the ability to win away because you have to win away to win a championship yeah. and we started to build that over time and in that championship year we won I think it was like 12 out of 14 games on the road it was 28 games I think we were nine and five at home so it gave us a lot of confidence when we got to those three-game three, game, those three game series back then, and we had to go through all the big clubs to get it.
0: There's another stat during the year, I think, that you guys won 12 games by three points or less as well. So dealing with pressure was a real attribute of that group as well?
1: That's a great question because knowing that I didn't have the most talent, in all honesty, if you look back, look at some of the teams, I sometimes wonder how, but mm. look, we had great team chemistry, players played hard. I think we had great game plans. What we did a lot of work on was knowing that I, I thought from day one, we're not going to blow too many teams out. So we worked a lot on close game finishes, tight games, what to do. And uh, it almost become something we can hang our hat on. So if we were within two or three or four points, and even if you get hold of the, the grand final, I think we are within three or four with a few five or six minutes to go uh, in different games. I'd, I'd say you guys, hey, we've got them. We've got them. Whether we're three up or three down, we've yeah. got this team. And we had that belief. And uh, we just really knew how to finish teams off.
0: And I guess that, you know, three-game final series is such a short turnaround. And I think the second game you guys lost by 17, 18 points there to the Townsville Crocodiles as well. And I think you had to front up the next day from memory. So how, how did you turn the group around knowing that I think you had a few personalities too, Charles Thomas and Damon Larry as well? So how, how did you sort of get the group back on track, you know, within that 24-hour period?
1: Well, we had to do it in every series, unfortunately. All games, <laughs> we, all, all series, you know, the, the one against Perth, uh, we won the first game at home. We go to play them because they had the home court advantage. Yep. So we had to win at least two or at least one and we dropped the second one there. And then we won game three. And That was probably one of the biggest moments I think that I've ever been involved with as a coach because I thought that was... If if you don't mind me flipping back to that mm. because that was... The Perth crowd hasn't... Nothing's changed, mate. There were over 10,000 at the... I think it was the Perth Entertainment Center at the time and or down 10 at halftime. And I read a lot of books and I... I I remember reading the passage of Pat Riley talking about trying to bring his team together uh, while there was adversity. And one of the lines he used to about, you know, all his books about the winner within and the disease of me and the disease of me is obviously when you have success and they start saying I'm the one. But Mm -hmm. I talked about, that was sort of something we worked on was doing things as a team. And I called the guys out at halftime. I obviously had to speak strategy, but from a motivational point of view, we looked done and I, just went round them one at a time and said to him, are you in or are you out? And the guy that I thought was totally out, I left him to last, so he had to say he was in. That's smart. <laughs> he said, I'm here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that was just amazing. Again, game three, that's probably one of the greatest memories in Perth because they're such a superstar lineup. If you go back through it with Australian players, imports, I think they had three or four imports then. Well, they were naturalized. I'm supposed to have two, they had four Americans. But that was amazing. So, So we sort of had... And then we beat Adelaide, which was tough. We had Hawks hadn't won too many games in Perth, Adelaide. So we did that. So now we faced with Townsville, who'd beaten us with two games to go. I had some injuries, and we dropped the last game. We were we were second. We dropped from second to fourth. Yeah. So they end up beating Gorgian's team, Peter Stacker was coaching. Him. So we sort of had great preparation, but as you say, if, if anyone looks at the video, I know it's on YouTube before the, at the start of the game. The crowd was going nuts. Like the Townsville crowd was as crazy a crowd as anyone. So parochial, noisy. But that night before we were fragmented, as you just mentioned, the 18-point loss. The biggest thing going through my mind: how do we, how do we, uh, how do I get these boys focused? And yeah. we didn't just have 24 hours; we had less than that because we had to play four o'clock in the afternoon oh, right. the next day.
0: Yeah.
1: So, and to be honest, like I'll say this now: they were arguing with each other. The first thing I did, we, we had something to eat, got him in a room, checked out some video, they're arguing with each other, blaming each other. You know, again, you just intervene and say, hey, this this is not going to work. Everyone had a, a role in this to play. We've got to move on and focus and play together. So what I did, you know, I had that video session. We talked about it. We actually talked about the Wollongong soccer team. They'd won a championship and they were the underdogs. And okay. wouldn't it be, you know, we used that as motivation as well. I showed some clips of them beating Perth. And how great it would be for our small city and small town to be a national champion along with our soccer team. Uh, and, and played on the fact that we'd never won one before. What you just mentioned. So I'd never won one as a player, I'd been in a grand final. So mm-hmm. the club hadn't won one for 23 years. Yeah. And I'd never been involved. And that's what motivated me to stay in coaching was to somehow win a championship. And I shared that with them. I said to them, hey, you know, you might think you're gonna do this next year, but in 1981, when I was with the Spectres, we lost to Launcester Casino City in, in West Adelaide. and I said, myself, Alan Black, and a guy named Peter Stacker, we walked out of Apollo Stadium, and I told him this story, and I said, we're in disgust, and I looked back like spoiled brats. We walked out, and we threw our runner-up medals out down the back of the side <laughs> of the stadium. And really? I Really? Yeah, this is true. Right. And yeah. then I haven't told this story too many times, but yeah. I said, boys, I can tell you now, six years later, we were playing Adelaide. I didn't tell anyone, but I jumped in the car and drove back to because we're now playing at the Clipsal. was called the Powerhouse where they play now, yep. big stadium. I walked around, drove, got in the car, drove around and, and looked for two hours to see if I could find that medal, <laughs> stick it out of the mud. Anyone? <laughs> no, mate. No. So I don't have that runner-up medal. I don't have that runner-up medal. I said, and what? And I said I thought we were going to win a few because we were a young group. Yep. I thought we were going to win it next year. Yeah, I go, it never happened, guys. We got playoffs and. I said, so it's about opportunity. And, you know, I shared that with them. Some of the players tell me that had a, a, a pretty strong impact on them. And then I went back and wrote them all a note. Of some of the things that I thought of what they did really well during the year and how proud of I was. And regardless of the result, it was a matter of just going out and trying to execute. But regardless of the result, if you give it your best, that's all we can ask for. So apparently, you know, players shared that with me later. that They love mm-hmm. that. Well, And so that was a way of trying to get them, you know, focused on the job at hand the next day and as you know we I know I think we led until four minutes ago again yeah yeah <laughs> and uh it was you're it it bringing back great memories Mitch obviously we won a 10
0: and probably that short turnaround is kind of a good thing because you don't have time to really think about it and dwell on it and you just need to get back to work and and turn it around I think you mentioned sort of that fire in the belly that coaches need to have as well you know Michael Voss was appointed Carlton coach yesterday and he mentioned yeah. he's, got, he's got the fire on the bell. He's a competitor at heart. I think obviously, you know, with your playing experience not being able to to win a championship, that obviously spurred you on as well. And I think uh, there's nothing wrong with that. We speak about development and making sure teams are harmonious and everything, but ultimately, particularly at the elite level, we're there to compete. Well, I think Voss
1: is a great opponent. I, I mean, he experienced obviously three premierships uh, with the Brisbane Lions, and we all know, How committed, how competitive, and how how great he was. And I think the experience of Brisbane, you know, in hindsight, people thought he was struggling. He actually did a pretty good job with a team that was in a rebuild. And that's not to be underestimated. I think he knows what he's going into. But I can tell you when you're a player and I think you've you've been a competitor and the players know that. I think there's an instant respect. Now, obviously, he'll walk in that door and they'll know he's bossy but they'll know about the way you played and you'll have an instant respect. Obviously, then the secret is to, to maintain that respect because then you've got to know, sell what, you know, really convince the players you know what you're doing. But I, I, I think he is. Like I'm, a, I'm not a Carlton guy, but I think that's a great appointment.
0: Yeah, I'm pretty excited. I know that missed out on Clarkson and, and Ross Lyon there, but I think he's just about the next best available. And I guess one thing that might have evolved over your 30 years in coaching is we know that forging relationships and being empathetic, critical qualities from the modern coach. Um, but how have you seen coaching evolve over time from the whole tactical side of things and that sort of direct instructions? It's, it's my way or the highway versus now it's very much, you know, the collaborative and, and getting the team to buy in.
1: Yeah. When I went to university, I was a Sparky for about eight years, right? Okay. While I was playing in the NBL. And then I went to Victoria University. It's called Fitzroy Institute of Technology. Yeah, My wife talked me into going back to school. and I, I didn't think I'd be very good, but it, again, just moving on from it, I think I would be the coach today if I didn't go to university because I would have been one of those tough, you know, run-through-the-brick-wall type coaches, mm-hmm. I reckon, because that's what I played for. Yeah, And so I, I think my, I guess, emotional intelligence improved by going to uni. I remember talking to Barnesy, Barry Barnes, you know, who we know was the Boomers coach, who was my coach, and I talked to him about some of the younger players. This is in the mid-'80s. I was the captain of the team and said, look, some of these guys are scared. And um, they're really intimidated, bats. You know, and he's like, obviously, didn't take it real well. You no. probably tell you the truth because. Yeah. And I said, look, I'm bringing this to you as captain. I think we're going to have to take a different approach. So, in answer to your question, I reckon this started to happen in the '80s. Everyone talks about the '2000s, okay. And so, with me being the the, the captain of that team, and we had some young young players. You know, the coach would you get after you, and he. I said to him, mate, you can get after me because my upbringing and I I've been coached by, but the kids you know, at the time, they weren't responding to it. They were going into a shell. And and that's consistent with, you know, today. Depending on the personnel, you can still challenge certain players. But across the board, as you say, it's more about planning, communication, and building relationships. But I think the big thing for me, what I learned from being the captain of the team, we ended up having a team meeting, and Baz, I've got to tell you this story, because you <laughs> we had this team meeting, and uh, – so, Barry said, he, Barnaby he said to me, Okay, let's have the team meeting and let's get it out there. Because <laughs> you've got him, Barry, yeah, 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 and, and credit to him, right? Because we didn't know which way it was going to go. So, everyone and I went to the boys and the young guys said, Look, well, you've got to speak up. And not all of them did because they, no. didn't, but the messages got out there and basically asking for Baz to change, you know, a little bit the coach yeah. in his methods. And, and he, look, in kind of long story short, he did because he ended up coaching Australia, top mm. four finishers. But this was a specific time for him, and it was great learning for me as captain. And I felt, you've got to support your players, but my job's to support the, co- the coach too, right? That's how, yeah. and the best way to support the coach is to be honest. So anyway, we have this meeting, we get out of the table. So we lose the next couple of games, right? But we're playing better. Like, we're we're playing really good. And I'll never forget this game we're playing in West Sydney. The score's 29-39 at half time. was a 40-minute game, or 48-minute game, I think, from memory, which yeah. is not a lot of points. So Baz. You know he can be pretty tough and intense. And he used to get this big vein on his head when you knew he was getting angry, right? He, and um, he starts looking around the room, and we're in there, and we're stinking, mate. We are, we are playing poorly, right? right. But we've been playing great for them. And he turns to me and he goes, "You, you," because i has been the captain. He goes, "Mr. Positive," and I can't remember what else. I, I can't say what else. His choice said. words, yeah, <laughs> yeah, Mr. Something, 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 positive, hey. <laughs> eh? You, and then he turns to one player. One of our top, he goes, You know what? I've got to say how it is. You something, something stink. You need to. <laughs> so, we've got the biggest spray of all time, yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, everyone, all, all the boys from that time on were teasing me about being Mr. Mis- positive and that <laughs> name for a little while, but we went out and won. <laughs> That's not a bad <laughs> response, so, but it, you know, credit to him that he got the message. But, you know what? We needed that spray at that time, but. This is the long answer to your question, but people say this is the modern day. This has been changing since the '80s, mm, yeah. right? And obviously, the big word I'm looking for now, I guess, what's really changed in the in the 2000s, and I've used utilized it, is empowerment. So in your planning, you know, as far as your vision goes and your mission, I involve all the players in that, and even to a point with our strategy, our game preparation, I would have individual meetings and. And ask them for their suggestions. You don't yeah. use everyone, but you're empowering them with, across the board. And with those meetings, you're build them I felt building a relationship because we didn't only just talk about strategy. The meeting would start off with, hey, what's happening? And they didn't have to open up to you, but by the time you built that sort of relationship, they actually tell you about things that were happening away from basketball. So yeah. that's sort of been some of the things that, that I've done to build the relationships. The big thing is as individual meetings and really encouraging people for their input. But utilizing it too, and be willing, if you, like, I remember um Daniel me, real team, strategical me, he's been a great player 2005 6 mm. we're going through the what we're going to do, how we defend this particular player, and he goes, puts his hand up, he goes, I, I don't think we should defend it that way, <laughs> right, and the whole room goes silent, like, he's saying <laughs> what he's basically saying, we, we, don't, we shouldn't defend this the way the coach wants it yeah, yeah, so I said, okay, well, what do you think, what are you saying, he said, well, I want to I think we defend it that way part of the time, but then sometimes we flip it up so we're not predictable. I went, what a great idea. Yeah. And that'll look, yeah. And we used it, and that changed, you know, that assisted me as a coach. It probably changed things a little bit for me, making sure I really, really did dig out the input from the players.
0: In those moments, being willing to sort of swallow your pride and just concede and and give the players that opportunity to really express their ideas, I think, can have really long lasting benefits too. So that's that's a great example. Another great example of, of coaching and arguably the most successful coach in Australian basketball history is Brian Gorgian, who you had a chance to work with as the assistant coach of the Boomers for a lengthy period of time. Can you, just, can you give us some insight into what makes Brian Gorgian tick? Why is he such an effective coach?
1: Well, he's as passionate as anybody you would ever get to know with the sport. His dad coached until I think his late 80s. His dad was a great coach. Ed, great Great man as well. Met him a few times. So he carries that passion and guidance down from his father. And I think that flowed on. Ed Gorgia, you know, he was involved in UNLV and Pepperdine when when Brian was a player. So he's had some pretty good role models as well along the way. So his knowledge, his passion, I think his preparation is as good as I've ever seen and been involved with. And, and we it'd be interesting, you know, I haven't been with him for a few years now, but even back coaching against him, we had some great battles. The you know these days you talk about we talk about loading with players and. We, we were doing all that, like, yep. you know, even even in early 2000s. But I think sometimes if you're any good as a coach, you're like a horse trainer. Sometimes you say to those support signers, hey, we need to go a little longer today. I need to push the intensity up. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I say I, I'm talking about Brian. This is the things I saw with Brian. I do it, mes- do it myself, yep. but you're asking me about Brian. So I think he... Sometimes I'd be on edge a little bit because he'd be pushing these guys at practice. To I'd be worried about injury, but he just had that ability to know when to pull back, but when to push. And I don't think everybody has that. No. And he has that ability to get the players to buy into that. But if you don't, I think, you know, Brian's had many also franchises that are talented, had good resources. So he he has had the ability to go, well, you know what if you don't, I'm going to get somebody else. But I think he has that ability to read those situations.
0: And that almost comes back to the the art of coaching versus the science of coaching. we can we can become very reliant yeah. on sports science and data and analytics, but that in itself knowing when to tape your group and to ramp things up, um, that's very much an art isn't it?
1: The art of war, you've obviously read that, the art of coaching, the art of war. Mm. Know oneself, know the enemy. So I've read that. Yeah, you know, that's about what you're talking about. It's not just about, you know, skills and things like that. It's about reading those situations, understanding, empathy, motivation, all that. It's a great book. Any
0: coach out there, The Art of War, get it.
1: It's a, it's a good book as far as giving you an education, understanding about some of those things you're talking about, Mitch.
0: I totally agree. And I guess keeping the national lens for a moment, look, Patty Mills uh, during the Tokyo Olympics was just, Absolutely incredible. I think he's the best leader in Australian sport, on court, on field, however we extend that. Just how influential has he been on the game in this country, particularly in recent times?
1: I've I got a little bit of hair stunned out the back of your neck talking about <laughs> what you're talking about here. It's just, just, you know, even though I'm not involved with the Boomers, eight yeah. years with Brian and then Brian comes back. So Patty was at the beginning, I was at the beginning of him and Joe's first, you know, tournaments and, and obviously first Olympics in um, Beijing. And Joey didn't play much. We pretty much took Joey to develop for the future. Yep. But Patty had the ability to play straight away. So Patty was playing big minutes, starting. And I remember playing against the USA in Shanghai. You know, at that point, you know, you're talking about, I'm just trying to think who was playing then. I'm, well, I'm pretty sure it was LeBron James. Yeah, you know, well, they had all the superstars, Dwayne Wade, Chris Paul. And they beat us by 20. And Patty had like 23 points and no one could guard him. Yeah, And I'm walking down the tunnel with Patty, you know, just straight after the game. And Mike D'Antoni comes up and pats him on the shoulder, the famous Mike D'Antoni, everybody yeah. knows now, and says, Hey, son, well done. You're going to be making some money, young fella. And, you know, within a couple of weeks, he had some NBA offers. Yeah. <laughs> but that was the start of it. Now, again, I'm, I'm going reflecting back on Patty. So yeah. I guess that's what, you know, when you have that sort of relationship or you have that situation would experience with those guys. So when you get to now, 2021, it's basically 2020, and we've had that heartbreak where, you know, Andre Lamar, he did an awesome job finishing fourth and didn't work out. But we get in that situation where we can medal. For Paddy, the play the way he did, like, he. I think he's 33 now. Yeah. I've never seen anything like it. I've never, as in all, like, you can talk about Andrew Gage, you can talk about, but we're talking about, and I tweeted, I, I I couldn't believe the intensity he was playing mm. with for every minute of the game. And the, you're just waiting for him to have a bad game, right? Maybe. Yeah, and you know what? Sometimes you're hoping someone has a little bit of a down game because you know it's not going to happen again. But he never had a down game.
0: No.
1: And so the team's double-teamed him, obviously, in the semi, but then he had a bunch of assists, right? And mm. his game in that bronze medal game is the greatest Incredible. game I've ever seen from any Australian. 42 points. And I tweeted... 42 has been really special. A lot of reasons for that. Mm. People would probably know. Jackie Robinson came to my mind because I think Patty is not only a great basketball player like Jackie Robinson, right? The first yes. black man to play baseball as far as I understand. Yep. patty has been carrying the man off the Indigenous. He, he, he carries it for everybody, but I, I know about that, how important that is to him. But on, from the basketball point of view, mate, that performance, oh, that that was just unbelievable. He just carried us, carried us to the medal.
0: It just made me <coughs> really proud to be Australian. Yeah. And I haven't had that impact as a little kid watching, you know, Steve War and those guys go around back, you know, wearing our national colours. But he, he was, he just willed his team over line.
1: Yeah. And my wife, I'm sitting there watching with my wife and we, we were sort of nervous and not saying a oh, lot. And then obviously the game went on, we got excited. Well, yeah. Whether you've been involved, or you haven't been involved. I can tell you now, I think that's the greatest performance I've ever seen from an Australian basketball player.
0: High praise. And I guess flipping it around a little bit, we know that Ben Simmons withdrew from the Tokyo Olympics team just prior to the start of the Olympics. So one thing that I guess cricket's dealing with is players opting to go to the IPL and, and forego some of their national responsibilities. As, a, as someone who's been involved in the national setup, how do you manage club franchise versus country debate? And are there any um, differences by extension when you're coaching at a club or franchise level versus country level as to how you manage some of those personalities?
1: Yeah, there is a little bit. I mean, obviously, with your own club, you've got some big personalities and you've got to get buy-in from them. And again, I think the best way to, is we talk about it is to build in relationships, as you said, in power. So Brian would have gone on a plane, visited everybody. Uh, I did that for him sometimes, even when I was assistant coach. If I was you know, scouting in Greece or yeah. and there was a player somewhere, I'd meet with him. I did it with the Opals. I'd go when I was coaching the Opals. See. So Brian would have done all that. and But some of the other problems we had in the mid-2000s was that the insurance payments for these players. So these players were signing a 10 million or $15 million contract, yep. and it actually cost you sometimes, I think it was like half a million or $2 a million to insure them. And so Barcelona Australia didn't have the money. So it really came down to the player. This was a big decision for a player. Think about it yourself. You've got a $10 million contract, and if you get injured, that could be the mm-hmm. end of that contract yeah. because you haven't got insurance.
0: Yeah.
1: So... Now these days, though, the NBA, there's the causes, and you know, I think they the NBA cover. It. So it makes it a little bit easier. So now it gets back to whether the player sincerely wants to represent their country. And the tough part is, you know, they're pretty much playing all year round. They're not getting a break. Mm. So that's something Patty, Joey, you know, that's the boomer's culture that's been itself. But there's been different players along the way. In the early days, I think Bogues did it once for memory. He couldn't play in a tournament because it was too big a risk. Yeah. Uh Matty Nilsson had a big contract in Europe for a couple of million dollars. Who's now the assistant coach. Mm. I know he didn't play in a tournament. But now these days they are covered. You know, I think the situation with the way it was with Philly was just Philadelphia. And again, with Brett Brown being there, i would visited Philadelphia probably at least four times over the last six years because he's a friend. Uh, I, I just think with what happened in the timing of that, the pressure that Ben was under and what was going on with that, it just put everything just made it all too difficult for that period of time. I think you'll play for Australia. But with what happened at Philadelphia, jeopardised that dramatically. Because, the, I mean, you saw the, the news on that, the social media, and it still is. It's ridiculous, in my opinion.
0: And, and perhaps the public don't know the inner workings and the, the battle of decision-making that has to occur for a player to, to opt into those kind of things. And, and you, you think, you know, with the boomer's culture now being so established that when he is ready to return, they'll... You know, receiving with welcome arms, I guess, and uh, he'll return to the fold.
1: Yeah, my understanding is he was communicating with the team, communicating with the coaches during the Olympics. There's so much at play, and it's probably there's stuff there that I don't know about. Yeah. Obviously, the decision's been made for him to go to another team at that point in time as well. Then, even though that that can jeopardise his current contract or his future contract if he got hurt, we're talking yeah. twenty four, forty million dollars. You know, yeah. I, I mean, whatever it is. So there's, say, a, there's a lot of play there. There's a lot yeah. of play there,
0: and you've been to three Olympics, two with the Boomers, and one as head coach of the Opals as well, as well as countless world championships. i have already spoken about the grind of the home and away season and winning away and the importance of that. But when it comes to tournament play, those two three week tournaments that lots of games in a short period of time, what are some of the secrets for a coach in setting up a team for tournament play?
1: Yeah, definitely trying to select your twelve players that you have confidence in putting on the court at some particular time in the tournament. Now, that'll vary. In my opinion, I try to, you know, usually I'd say a minimum of 10 players because if you've got to play, when you go to the World Cup, for example, usually have to play six games to win a gold medal. At the Olympics, it's usually eight. Yeah. At this last Olympics, it was six because of COVID. So the Olympics is, obviously, you have to be a bit more consistent in the Olympics. But six games, as you say, in 14 days requires – you can't get it done with five players. So you need to select – be really careful about your selection, the depth, and have backups. Then you've got the philosophy of whether you pick the 11th and 12th player for the future Olympics. Mm -hmm. We did that with the girls, and Brian and I did that, obviously, early days, but they didn't do that this time. Okay. Right, the Boomers. Neither did the Opals. They took more experienced teams. So, you know, again, it gets back to philosophy of the coach at the time, but I was surprised to see that with Brian because he didn't choose Giddy. Giddy's definitely – you know, I reckon goes pretty well. I, that, that was a big surprise for me. So mm. but at the end of the day they got the medal. So what's the difference? You got you gotta make sure you have depth if you can. You've got to make sure that you have plans in place to overcome it. You talked about, you know, in the three game series of uh, how do you get over a loss? You definitely gotta do that. With the girls at the World Cup, we won four games, we won a semifinal final, uh, then we lost a semifinal to the US put us into goal. Unfortunately, we were matched up against them in the semi. We lost by 12, and the girls were devastated. So looking around the room, similar to, you know, like coaching the team, I'm thinking, the secrets are to make sure, I think, that you have some depth, obviously, to get through a tournament. You've played everybody where you can without trying to risk losing to build the confidence of that depth Mm -hmm. because if you don't play them, they lose confidence pretty easily during the tournament. they say, well, I haven't played. And when you put them in a crunch situation, they're not going to perform. So I think that's methodical about how you go about it, making sure you give everybody some minutes in when their time's right. Uh, and the third thing is, you know, having a plan for overcoming adversity because if you do have a loss, you've got to bounce back. So going into that, we lost the US. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of games where I was the head coach with the Opals. Uh, we lost by 12, but it was like we lost by 40, you know, in, a, in mm-hmm. the girls' minds. They, yep. we, we, and we'd lost Cambridge. I don't know if you remember, we lost Lizzie Cambridge 10 days before, no one said we'd uh, make the make the Final Eight, let alone be playing for a medal. So anyway, we were playing out of our minds, and we lost to the US by 12. It was unbelievable performance. So then, similar thing, we went back, watched some film, and I, I I actually took, you know, just sharing with you whether this is a secret or not, yep. I talked about how good we've been going. I asked my video analysis guy, I said, get up some highlights of each player. I want every player to see themselves Playing great during this tournament, everybody had done something because we had played all twelve. I think we played eleven out of twelve players. and twelve player, there was a few highlights, but you know it's pretty tough. There, but I said I want to see everybody in it, and then I want a little individual one so that they all we give them something to, before they go to bed.
0: Yeah, they
1: can look at it, and only got to be a three-minute clip. A lot of work for the video guy. <laughs> it
0: would have been
1: spewing. <laughs> oh yeah, but that's how it is. You and people look back, and all of us as coaches, mate. We're working 24-7. You'll see the games, but we're all working 24-7. Yeah. Look, at right. position, look at our opposition, look at ourselves. So you've got to do all that. Let's not forget that. That's yeah. part of it. If you're not doing that, you're not winning. Yeah. But I think it's about building confidence, maintaining confidence, right? Belief, that word belief's massive for me as a coach. You know, again, being a past player, I know my own challenges weren't really my opponent. And I talk to this players, most of the time it's yourself. It's your damage you carry yourself. That's why players probably don't play their best till about twenty six, twenty seven, because they've gotten over their own demons, right? About just overthinking it, getting down on the losses, and then after a while, you go, "I just got to do this." So the earlier you can get players to understand that, the better. These days, with all the psychologists, we can tend to do that, but I still think players don't play their best. Look at the Melbourne Demons right now. Look at Petrarca and mm. Max Gorn. You know, they're all in their late, took me to late twenties, yep. uh, and, and it's no secret what what's going on there. So going back to it, we had a pretty young team with the Opals that year and we were in a bit of a rebuild. It was about building their confidence. And as you know, we went out and destroyed Turkey on their home court, 20,000 people. First six minutes, mate. Check it out. They don't score. Hmm. <laughs> 17-0. So,
0: so it's a crowd. Def- yeah.
1: Defensive plan. And that was part of it. Let's get take the crowd in it. But yeah. I'm standing there after about three minutes to myself oh, he's just going to keep going. <laughs> How good is this? You know, the girls are just executing offensively, yeah. defensively, getting after it. So that's one of these two or three great moments of, you know, you, they call it, I can't pronounce his name, Kitsumahali's flow or whatever it is, the mm-hmm. flow state. We were in that flow state for sure. And we ended up winning by 30. So, you know, pretty awesome. No, you've
0: pretty got to awesome. enjoy it when you're in that state because it's it's few and far between usually for a coach to, to witness that with their team. But um, I think your point around getting... Players in the squad are looking at the ice cream as well because if they're just warming the bench for two weeks and seeing all their mates, uh, you know, get court time, then that, eventually they're going to become disengaged, aren't they?
1: Yeah, and you'll see that with some you – know, it gets back to the philosophy of coaches. It does happen. But, again, I think having been a past player, it, it, I've experienced that. I, like, yeah. I did jump out there as a player and I know, you know, what I didn't get any minutes, what impact it had. So that stayed with me as a coach. And the point you made Mitch is spot on so if you can like you said try and let the sun shine on each player somewhere along the line if you're up 25 30 put them out there yeah don't absolutely. win by 40 or 50 because it's about you know the big picture in the tournament it being fresh ready to go
0: yeah squad mentality squad mentality yeah. and you uh you had the chance to coach the Gold Coast blaze uh, who are now defunct in the in the NBL and you were the inaugural coach there. Uh, and you led the the blaze to the finals in their in their first season. So, I asked this question of Julie Hornway, who was the inaugural coach of the Melbourne Vixens as well. But, what's it like coaching a startup club or franchise? And what are some what are some of the immediate priorities that you had to establish to develop a high performance culture?
1: That word culture. The biggest concern I had when I looked at it: no Gold Coast team, whether it be rugby, uh, if you looked at it, they'd all fell apart. Yeah. You know, even the basketball. I think the Gold Coast Rollers early days start out five and one fell apart, and the Gold Coast, as we know, and I know when we visited the Gold Coast, we early days, after we beat them, we had a good night out. (laughs) (laughs) So that's okay on a visit, but I knew when you're coaching a team, there's a possibility they might have a good night out every night.
0: Some temptations. yeah.
1: Yeah, so culture and getting the players to understand, you know, if they truly wanted to be successful, that we couldn't be a party team. And so what did that mean? So I put a lot of work in on culture. I got Ray McLean involved from leading teams yep. uh, to come up. I got Tony Shawmy, mate, who we grew up with, who we still communicate to this day, yep. talking about Collingwood Footy Club and character. And he gave me a speech. I utilised different people. So the big focus for me from day one was culture. And the second thing was ha- trying to pick a team where we had some young kids, some experienced kids. And obviously, when you start up a new franchise, you usually got some players nobody else wants. Because mm. we don't have... We're not an attraction because no one – people don't know what's going to happen, right? Yeah. So we're a bit of a mixed bag. And then – so with that, you know, I had to sell, well, the underdog mentality, this is your last stop. You're either continuing your career for us or if we have success, somebody else is going to come along and I'll probably offer you bigger money. Or, yeah. You, that, that's part of the sell. But, but it's all playing, It doesn't just happen. So, you know, put together a balanced team. We tried to put together a balanced team even though we didn't have the best team. And then the next thing was to get the players to buy into the culture. And the most difficult people to buy into that are usually the Americans because mm. of the makeup of what they come from, the competitive dog eat dog world. Whereas we're a bit more team oriented here, although I think it's changing with Australians. Mm. We're becoming that way a little bit more, uh, but still not, not where near where the US is. But the cultural thing was massive in buying in being professional. Uh, and then there's the roles of the players, right? trying to get the players to understand their role. And, mate, we, we, we could have probably, you know, I, I don't know if you're aware, but we were like, we won a game in Townsville at New Year's Eve, and I think it made us 12-5 and five or 12-6. and six. So I think we went to second or third on the ladder, and we all looked at each other to celebrate New Year's Eve and said, we can win this. Yeah. Right? And we had that feeling. And then the next morning we woke up, one of my players was ill, and um, we didn't know what it was. So we had to play the Melbourne Tigers two days later. Mm. He wanted to get off the plane in Sydney. We said, no, no, just wait there and we'll hope, you know, because they thought he was dehydrated. So then we took him to the hospital, uh, the Alfred, and they sent him home, said he was severely dehydrated. And we woke up the following morning of the game and he said, Coach, a young not we swear, he said, I'm not right. And we took him, he'd actually had a stroke.
0: Yeah, incredible.
1: So, yeah, so we lost, we ended up obviously losing him. And that had an impact on us for about four weeks. We dropped some games, but we still made it through to the playoffs. Yeah, on the back of that culture, on the back of that, you know, we, we just did all the right things in getting the team ready. But for me, even if you start, especially we start a new franchise, culture
0: is so important. And you spoke about managing some of the imports, the American imports, with probably a bit more outspoken than Australian athletes typically. How do you go about steering them in the, in the direction of team first? We we see that. You know, there's a video Alan Iverson talking about practice 20 years ago, just one that resonates with me and, you know, he's willing to shoot from the hip and whereas probably don't see that in Australian sports culture is very much one week at a time and game of two halves, et cetera. How do, how do you manage those different personalities, particularly if they're, you know, imports or from overseas?
1: Well, definitely around that time, I think Alan Iverson was a role model to a lot of players. I thought that was the case with some of them. <laughs> and not, but these days, not many Americans are like that. But that yeah. was the era. And I'm just trying to think one of, one of the you know when you've coached a while, you really have. It's not about coaching for the money. I haven't made a lot of money, but it's about the people I've met.
0: Mm-hmm. So you've
1: hit a real nail on the head here. I was privileged to sit on a plane for three and a half four hours from Dallas, Texas going you know dodging a blizzard all the way to Philado- uh, yeah philadelphia sit beside larry brown yeah larry brown was his coach right at detroit now larry was yeah. coaching smu so I, i'd gone to smu because they wanted to recruit some of the girls and guys the thrillings and he invited me and i asked him exactly that question mm. mick how do you coach a guy like <laughs> Iverson? <Yeah. laughs> and he said let me tell you he goes he he just he really just talk, spoke positive. He said he's the most biggest competitor I've ever coached. He said I just had to try and understand him, not control him, and work with him. And he, he didn't go into the challenges, but we all know. But these days, I know that Alan Iverson went back to SMU and spoke so well to Larry Brown and talked about what type of coach they had, and, and you know reflected on how good Larry Brown was mm. for him, even though. And I think it just takes a while for some players to get it through. I'd coach some guys that at the time definitely didn't love me because sometimes you do have to challenge that players because the team comes first, right? But in answer to your question, how do you do that? If you've got the right culture and you're setting up the right culture and you're empowering the players, Mm -hmm. you usually to you know, everyone talks about leadership group now. Yeah. So you would hope that, you know, the strength of your leaders would bring that play forward. And we had, I, I sort of adapted a model which Sydney Football Club used later. Because we're a new franchise, we didn't point a captain. I, I, and this wow. is through Ray as well. We talked yeah. about rotating the captaincy, which would develop the leadership along the way. So it strengthened the leadership. So one of the imports we used to have a lot of challenges with, but I'd seen it all before. And, and basically the players would say, hey, you, got, you can't do this and do that. And he would, those players hated it when the players challenged them even more so than me. Like,
0: that's when it's you know, most powerful. That's when it's most yeah, powerful. Yeah.
1: yeah, and so it was, and that and, and that's when it was most powerful. But there's always a time though that there's some things the coach has to have the courage, yeah, to make the call or communicate the message that you know, someone doesn't want to hear.
0: Yeah, the, the the best sprays that I remember are the ones that I've got from teammates or captains or you know established players. That they're the ones that have really stuck with me for. 15, 20 years in a cricket sense. And, uh, <laughs> we've mentioned a bit of footy before we started recording. We're we'll talking a fair bit of footy as well. So listeners will notice the, the, the link to footy there. And we often hear AFL commentators, you know, speaking about players' basketball backgrounds. You, you roll your eyes every time they talk about Scott Pendlebury's basketball background. But what, in terms of spatial awareness, and ball handling, how, how are some of those qualities transferable to, you know, multiple sports?
1: Yeah, they do. You just mentioned uh, spatial awareness and, operating with confined space, you know, we, we, we talk about throwing fakes and dodging and twisting and turning. Yeah. There's guys, for people of my vintage, I grew up with um, Tony Shaw, who I mentioned before, yeah. and Terry Wallace. We all played basketball with each other right. for Victoria, and they were great basketball players. So they actually had to make choices between basketball and footy. They played state footy. I'm pretty sure Tony played one or two NBL games with the Coburg Giants.
0: There you
1: go. Right? And then made a decision. Terry would have been an NBL player I played with the same club as Terry. We're, we're still good friends today, Clow yeah. and I. And I actually used Terry to come and talk to the Wollongong Hawks the year we won the championship. Yeah. And uh, he, he was awesome. So you use those friendships. But those two guys, and I say those two guys, you talk about Scotty Fandery, which we know, and I know because he played against my son, so I saw a fair bit of him. Yeah. And we talked about the institute, how he wanted taller guards to develop, to try and match international players. And Scotty's about 6'2", six, 6'3". Six, so he got the scholarship. He got a scholarship at the AIS to play basketball. And yeah. the story goes, he decided to turn around and play footy. But Tony Shaw and Terry Wallace, they weren't the quickest guys. Bernie Evans was another guy that played for Carlton. I'm, I'm pretty sure Michael Roach played Tasmania basketball. Okay. Peter Moore played a bit of basketball. Yep. So this is not new. Those guys weren't the quickest. Some of them weren't the quickest. But they had that ability to you know, not be tackled, uh, be evasive, you know, and have time to you know, handball get rid- their, their hand-eye coordination with that, within that space of awareness. So both sports complement each other. And then there's the athleticism with the way the footy's gone now. You know, obviously the athletes are the same. Like I, I had recruiting guys asking me about is there any basketball? Is that like Adrian Dodora? Every year rings me from Essendon. <laughs> uh, you yeah, know, he's got he called me before, but he's always asking. Is someone out there? And I, yeah. I know, you know, we we talk, They tried to get Mitch Creek about seven eight years ago, and they nearly had him. Mm. Then Adelaide gave him the contract. So they're always, you know, all these the footy teams these days—they're all looking. And as you know, a lot of the top footy players these days were good basketballers. Petrarca, all of them, there's, there's a heap of them.
0: We've seen Josh Jenkins, and, yeah, Dean Brogan, and one or two others um, be able to transition to and from. And you've got a, and we actually had Terry Wallace on the podcast a few weeks ago, and I think he made the right choice. Three or four time uh, premiership player, and you know, obviously an outstanding coaching career too. So he was, he was a wonderful chat. But you've also got a high performance slash sort of leadership consultancy business that you do as well. So can you tell us about some of the work that you do in that space and some of the clients that you might have worked with?
1: Yeah, it's mainly um, associations in basketball. I have gone around to some AFL clubs when they've asked me to to, to share about strategy. Like it's not just about uh, the leadership, it could be about strategy. Like at different times along the way, I remember going to Sydney with Johnny Longmire and spending nearly a whole – I was supposed to go there for an hour or two and i have spent nearly a whole day. I think that was 2012, actually, the year they won it. Not yep. saying I'm very but <laughs> We just shared information. And, you know, Collingwood, I've, I've done a couple of things with them, St. Kilda, just along the way. Cricket Victoria, I right. presented to them. And it's more, you know, what the presentations have been about building success. So, some of the, a lot of things we've already talked about, you know, establishing a plan, a vision, and then what are the, the attributes or, or what's the formula for that. And, you, and we talk about culture, we talk about how do you establish your leaders? So I talk about strategies on how to establish a leadership group. You know, all stuff I've learned from great people as well. So you take pieces of what you learn, but then I've got the experience of of actually having to coach it. So I can actually share some great examples of it working and at times failing, but obviously everybody wants to know what works. So providing those sort of strategies on development leadership, development culture, planning, you know, what, what is a high performance plan? How does it look? You know, I can tell you, when a high-performance manager, you don't have – I think you don't have to know everything. And as a coach, we didn't have all the res- – we don't have the resources, or we didn't, like they do in footy. So the early mid-2000s, we went to, as a coach. I think we are like a high-performance manager. Yeah. So I would organise our medical meetings with our doctor, our physio, our strength conditioning coach. And, you know, here I am coaching the team, but, mate, it was unbelievable seeing the battles of egos in those meetings between the physio <laughs> and the strength conditioning coach. Yeah. So when I talk to clubs, I talk about this, about you have to build a team within a team. So we actually, for me, it's not just about building your team in regard to players. It's about your staff working together as a team and make sure you're staying on the same page and supporting each other and people staying in their lanes. So I sh- you know, I, I've got, I think, expertise in all those areas where I can assist and provide some advice for clubs or associations in basketball.
0: Now, management skills are very important. And speaking of a, an effective manager, Larry Kesselman's done a great job in terms of the resurgence of basketball in this country? I mean, it was probably on a pretty steep decline there for a period of time. What does the future hold for the NBL, do you think, and basketball more generally in this country?
1: Well, what's been great about Larry, he's backed it up. I think a lot of people have have stepped up uh, or said they were going to step up. but They didn't actually put the money into the game. He sacrificed a lot financially to support the sport and grow the sport. I'd love to know how much money he's lost. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I'm hoping he's starting to make money now. Yeah,
0: labor of uh, love. If we yeah.
1: have we, yeah, we just haven't had that before. And so I take my hat off to him and credit to him that he's really back to sport. And he's obviously brought in some people to have some ideas and you know, develop some ideas to make it not only a national game here, but more of an international game. And his criticisms for that, positives and negatives, but at the end of the day, people are talking about the NBL again. We've been noticed by the NBA people are taking notice around the world now, and that's a credit to him because of what he's put in place. And I think it's only you know what I think it's only beginning. I think it's going to continue to grow and get better. I think I wouldn't like to say he you know the hard hard part of the job's been done. It'd be interesting to get it from him mm-hmm. what he thinks. You know I haven't had a conversation with him for a while. You know but doing the radio work with SEM SEN sorry a couple of times. You know we talked about the developments. So I haven't had probably that discussion for a year because of COVID. But he's just backed up what he said he wanted to do and just provided the resources and and just really assisted in becoming a, a, an international game here, not only in Australia, but not just a national game, an international game. You can see, but we're starting to bring in players from Europe, let alone the yeah.
0: USA, to play in yeah. the league. Now, it's brilliant to see. I'm a school teacher in the western suburbs of Melbourne and soccer's probably the number one sport. You know, the kids are participating in at lunchtime and recess but basketball's at a pretty close second there's not much footing in cricket mind you it's very much uh yeah soccer and basketball so I think the game will only continue to flourish and I guess in closing Brendan you in a few weeks time you are headed to Taiwan to coach the Guangshong Aquas hopefully I've uh, pronounced that correctly can you tell us about the club and, and the preparation you've been undertaking before you head over in a couple of weeks
1: yeah they wanted me to go over in September but I actually thought I'd be still coaching here and and had a lot of activities, but obviously COVID's made it difficult. So I've been communicating with the assistant coaches and a lot of the the local boys are there. Uh, It's a new team, it's a new club, but I've got the experience of doing that with the Gold Coast, so I think I have a little bit of an advantage, but seem to be wonderful people. It's going to be a professional team. It's called the T1 League, new team in the new league, and it looks like we've got some great people involved in running the club, Uh, Wilson League. Uh, he was a graduate of Stanford, worked there for 10 years. He's the president of the club. So we've got some people that worked in America. I think his wife went to Stanford and, you know, her parents, I think, own the team. They're big-time sponsors as well as owners. So it's it's in its infancy. And so it's going to be a little bit different. We can have three imports, but I only play two at a time. Okay. But that's going to be interesting, how to manage that. You know, so there's a, there's a focus on making sure you play the local players a certain amount of time. Yep. I can have what's called an Asian import. So if someone's from Asia, but they can only play half the game. So that's a really interesting right. thing I'm going to have to manage. And I've had that chat with, you know, the player that we've selected seems like a pretty good player. And he said, how are we going to do this? I said, I don't know yet. Cause I wouldn't haven't, know. Haven't <laughs> so let's work it out. And weird, work it yeah. out and we get over there. Yeah. yeah. And like, you know, people saying, oh, you're playing the first half and second half. And as you know, the game could be lost in the second and third quarter. So yeah. I'm thinking five minutes in each quarter, that's what I was thinking that. when you,
0: when you mentioned that. Yeah. I'll be thinking five minutes a quarter,
1: yeah. Yeah, depending on how that manages. And then the three airports. well, obviously the best two are going to play most of the time. So, <laughs> you know, I, I don't, but then I've got the local kids. It's quite exciting, different. You know, I, I've coached all around the world, obviously, with the boomers and the Opals, And the timing's right for me. The kids are all grown up. I yeah. sat down with my wife. They, they headhunted me. I did the research. We talked about this before. Joy Burke, a Taiwanese girl, or grew up, born in Taiwan, lived in America. I contacted her. She's quite famous in um, Taiwan yeah. as a player for the women's team. So she gave me the background and everything, played a big role in me making this decision. So I'm pretty excited. The style of play is different. I don't know if you watch much Asian basketball. Really quick, yeah. spread out. Look, it's still still the same game. Yeah, I'm looking forward because it it's just an international opportunity. As you know, Andre Lamartis has gone to Japan. Paul Hanari's in Japan I've been and Sean Dennis. So I've all had an association with those three guys. So they really encouraged me to take this on as well. And the money's pretty good. Bitch. It's, it's, it's a pretty good contract. <laughs> a so, night, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a great, great opportunity.
0: No, it sounds very exciting. And, and your legacy here, Brandon, both as a player and a coach, you know, 289 NBL games in a 12-year playing career. And then as coach, you know, with the Wollongong Hawks. Gold Coast Blaze. we mentioned, boomers, opals, you've done it all, mate, in Australian basketball. So we wish you the best of luck in Taiwan. Thanks for being so generous with your time and thoughts. Uh, thanks very much, Mitch. Great to be here. Thanks, Brendan. Hey, everyone in Clubland. As always, those who get around the podcast on socials will get a shout out each week. Marie Livy was kind enough to share the Sean Flynn podcast on Twitter, and she is last week's winner of the $30 Big Dog voucher. Thanks for listening, Marie. And prominent former Premier Cricket coach Andrew Walton commented on the Brian Harper episode, saying that Harps was, as always, generous in giving back, which is very true. And a reminder for listeners who follow both Big Dog Clothing and our podcast on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, should you share a post, story, or retweet a podcast episode, you'll go into the running for a weekly $30 voucher. Entries close Tuesday, 5 p.m. each week. We've got footy, cricket, and soccer coaches coming up over the next few weeks, so keep your eyes peeled. If you have any recommendations, please send them through as well. Cheers, guys. Thanks for listening to this episode of Coaching Clubland. A shout-out to the talented Aidan Arandez for putting together our podcast theme song, if you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to hear more subscribe to the podcast on apple podcasts spotify or google Podcasts. feel free to leave a rating and review to catch the latest updates from the podcast check us out on facebook or on twitter at coaching club pod thanks again and catch you around in clubland